Welcome to Aaron Menke's Cabinet of Curiosities, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild. Our world is full of the unexplainable. And if history is an open book, all of these amazing tales are right there on display, just waiting for us to explore. Welcome to the Cabinet of Curiosities. If you talk to the residents of Pontianak, Indonesia, many of them will tell you that their city is haunted, and it has been for over 250 years. Situated near the western coast of Indonesian Borneo, in between Singapore and the Philippines, Pontianak used to be a vast expanse of forest. It wasn't until 1771 that the contemporary Indonesian leader, or sultan, led a group of explorers to the area. He instructed them to start chopping down trees so that they would have a place to build his palace. And the sultan? Well, he didn't exactly believe in the eight-hour workday. He made his employees work around the clock. The men chopped trees at all hours of the night, making their way through the dense forest by the light of the moon. And then one night, when the moon was full, they heard something strange. It sounded like a baby crying, but it was so quiet that they couldn't be sure. A sour, putrid scent wafted on the breeze. Suddenly, they heard a woman laughing, and then they saw a figure clad in a long white dress, darting between the trees. They knew exactly what it was, too, the Kuntilanak. One of the most famous and fearsome creatures in Indonesian folklore, the Kuntilanak is said to have pale skin, black hair, and blood-red eyes. Her fingernails are as long and sharp as knives. Her canine teeth look like fangs of a lion. Now, depending on the version of the myth, the Kuntilanak either died in childbirth or suffered a miscarriage. The loss transformed her into a vengeful, vampiric spirit, known to hunt and eat men. And as her eerie laughter reverberated through the forest, the men ran to the sultan and told him that there was a ghost in the woods. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was being hunted by a bloodthirsty spirit, I'd get a one-way ticket out of town. But not the sultan. He was determined to build his palace, so he took two anti-ghost measures. First, he fired a few cannons to scare the Kuntilanak away. Second, in case she ever came back, he named the settlement after her, in the hopes of appeasing her anger. And that's where Pontianak came from. It's another name for the spirit. Whether or not the Sultan's methods worked is still up for debate. Some people think that Kuntilanak is just a story, but others believe the vampire spirit continues to haunt the city. Either way, the legend is an important part of local culture. A festival is held each year to commemorate the end of Ramadan, and also to set off cannons and make sure the Kuntilanak stays far away. Now, while most people would like the malevolent spirit to keep her distance, one man suggested that they embrace her. In 2017, the head of the city's tourism agency pitched an idea for how to bring more visitors to the area. Why not build a statue of the Kuntilanak right outside the local recreation center? Oh, and to make things even better, how about the terrifying bloodthirsty ghost be 300 feet tall? As you might imagine, people were not enthused about the prospect of seeing their nightmares brought to life. In fact, as news about the statue spread, locals were polled, and 98% said that they were opposed to having a murderous spirit literally looming over their city. Within days, a group of citizens organized and gathered outside the city's parliament building, holding a banner that read, Community Movement to Reject Ghost Statue. Before long, the demonstrators were invited inside. Members of parliament said that they didn't understand why the protest was even happening. The city's head of tourism was known to have a sense of humor. 
It turned out the media had taken his joke about building a 300-foot-tall ghost statue and spun it into a story that ignited national outrage. The following month, the mayor of Pontianak issued a statement to put people's minds at ease. There would be no statue of Kuntilanak gracing their city. As for her spirit, though, well, that was something he couldn't guarantee. This episode is sponsored by Intuit. Here's a story for you. Once upon a time, a young woman was haunted by the ghosts of bad financial decisions, with credit card debt and an empty savings account looming over her every day. But when she tried to ignore these ghosts, they only grew bigger and scarier. And these ghosts of her bad financial decisions were stopping her from living her best life. So she decided to face them head on and take control of her finances with help from Intuit. Intuit helps you face your financial fears with confidence through products like TurboTax, Credit Karma, QuickBooks, and MailChimp. Whether you're trying to manage your money or trying to run a business, Intuit gives you the confidence to take control of your finances so you can live your best life. Intuit is the financial platform that helps everyday people prosper. Intuit has helped 100 million people live their best financial lives. Visit Intuit.com, I-N-T-U-I-T.com to start living yours. Let's get into it. When you hear the word dinosaur, an image of a T-Rex probably springs to mind. In this post-Jurassic Park era where kids grow up playing with miniature versions of prehistoric beasts, dinosaurs are well-known. But if you lived in 1840 and someone said dinosaur, you would have absolutely no idea what they were talking about. The word didn't even exist yet. Although the first dinosaur bone was discovered in the 17th century, it wasn't until 1842 that English biologist Richard Owen coined the term dinosauria, which means terrible lizard. Owen was a leading paleontologist during his time, and he aimed to educate the public about these so-called terrible lizards. That's why, in 1851, Owen teamed up with famous sculptor and natural history artist Benjamin Hawkins. The pair hatched a plan to bring lifelike dinosaurs to London. Using Owen's scientific background and Hawkins' artistic skill, the men created dozens of life-sized dino sculptures, which were put on display at Crystal Palace Park in South London. On the day the dinosaurs were unveiled in 1854, over 40,000 people crowded into the park to get a look. The display was so groundbreaking that one modern paleontologist credits Owen and Hawkins with making dinosaurs mainstream. Fast forward to 1868. While Owen continued his work in England, Hawkins moved to America. He worked on a few different projects, like a series of lectures on paleontological art. During one of these talks, he mentioned how much he'd like to create more dino sculptures like those in London. The next thing he knew, he was contracted by the administrative board of New York City's Central Park. It seems that they had a project that was right up Hawkins Alley, an American equivalent of London's Crystal Palace dinosaurs. In true American fashion, the board wanted Central Park's display to be bigger and better. With a budget of $7.5 million in modern-day dollars, they dreamed of an exhibition chronicling life in North America, including sculptures of the dinosaurs that once lived in the region, and it would be called the Paleozoic Museum. For Hawkins, the commission was a dream come true. He spent the next two years holed up inside his studio. He made the Hadrosaurus, a long-tailed bipedal dinosaur with a beak-like nose, and the Dryptosaurus, which looked kind of like a mini T-Rex. 
but mini is a relative term. The Dryptosaurus was still 25 feet long. When you consider the scale of these sculptures, you realize that Hawkins really had his work cut out for him, and the process wasn't all smooth sailing. He got kicked out of his original studio and had to move all of his work into a temporary shed. Just imagine a middle-aged guy trying to get his 25-foot dinosaur statue into a U-Haul. And then, there was the issue of Central Park's administrative board, which was full of drama. In 1870, a man named William Tweed was one of New York's state senators, but he was also the de facto leader of New York City. One of the most corrupt politicians in state history, William Tweed was more commonly known as Boss Tweed. He ruled the city like a mafioso, and he placed his cronies in charge of Central Park administration. Cronies like Henry Hilton. And Tweed and Hilton, well, they weren't fans of the Paleozoic Museum. Now, the exact reasons why are still up for debate. Some people think that Tweed had a religious opposition to science, while others believe that he simply thought the project was too expensive. But perhaps the most interesting theory surrounds another museum entirely. You see, at the very same time that the Paleozoic Museum was in the works, so was the American Museum of Natural History, which is obviously still up and running today. The Museum of Natural History was to be built right next to Central Park, and it also featured dinosaurs which wouldn't necessarily be a problem. I mean, the more dinos, the merrier, right? Well, not if you were Henry Hilton. You see, Hilton had been a very vocal proponent of the Museum of Natural History, and he didn't want any competition hindering its success. In December of 1870, Benjamin Hawkins, our dino sculptor extraordinaire, received a letter from the administrative board letting him know that the entire project had been canceled. The note wasn't signed by Tweed or Hilton, but it was pretty clear what had happened. Hawkins, as you might imagine, was bitterly disappointed. And as if things couldn't get worse, one day in May the following year, he arrived at his workshop to find the floor littered with shards of plaster and cement. Someone had broken into his shed and smashed every dinosaur to bits. As for the culprit, while there's no definitive proof, it is believed that Henry Hilton, who had a penchant for bizarre and violent behavior, committed the assault himself. Soon after this final blow, Benjamin Hawkins returned to England, where he lived out his final years as a recluse. But despite this sad ending, he still made his mark on New York City. According to one historian, the broken pieces of Hawkins' dino sculptures didn't remain in his warehouse. There's evidence that the material was ground down and used to pave parts of Central Park. And that's history for you, right? Even a sidewalk can tell you a curious tale. I hope you've enjoyed today's guided tour of the Cabinet of Curiosities. Subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts or learn more about the show by visiting curiositiespodcast.com. This show was created by me, Aaron Mankey, in partnership with How Stuff Works. I make another award-winning show called Lore, which is a podcast, book series, and television show. And you can learn all about it over at theworldoflore.com. And until next time, stay curious. Thank you.